Well, we're tackling a, a tricky topic and a tricky passage tonight. Um, I'm quite aware that um, the topic raises personal issues and, and perhaps pain in people's past, and um, uh, I'm very aware of that as we go through. Also, maybe questions about what does that bit of the passage mean and, that, uh, and, and how do we think about that topic. Um, so I'm very open to questions and conversations afterwards. Um, I, I welcome that, as always, but maybe particularly tonight, uh, given the ground that we're covering. But let me pray, and uh, we'll get into Matthew 19. Lovingly, loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us as we look at your word to receive it humbly. Uh, and we pray, Father, that you would, um, no matter our situation, speak to us and help us to know what, how you would have us live, uh, what our priorities would be, um, and how to go forward. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a TV show that's on a lot in our house at the moment in which uh, expert chefs are competing with each other over who can make the best dessert. Um, I'm not sure why anybody would want to watch that show, given that none of us are ever get to eat the desserts that you see on the show, and none of us are even capable of cooking the same desserts um, to eat at home. And so it doesn't have a lot of appeal to me. I go upstairs and find my book when it's on, which is a lot of the time. Uh, but my kids used to watch a much better cooking show um, called Nailed It, in which amateur cooks uh, were given the task of copying a cake that an expert had made. And the moment that their creations were unveiled and put side by side with the original, they would say, nailed it. And um, it was always a funny moment because the actual never matched the ideal. Do we have a picture? There we go. <laughs> Nailed it, so you can imagine the funny moment when it's unveiled and everybody has a good giggle. Uh, now, in a sense, that comparison between the ideal and the actual, it kind of sums up the Christian life, doesn't it? Um, I can relate to the right-hand picture being my Christian life and the left-hand picture being what the Bible says to do in many ways. And that really is the struggle of the Kingdom of Heaven. In Matthew, we've seen this struggle over recent weeks in the area of faith. You might remember the disciples were asked to heal a boy and they couldn't do it because their faith had become perverse uh, and so they failed. Um, in the area of the care of sinners in the church, there's often a gap between the ideal and what actually ends up happening. In the area of personal forgiveness, which was last week, we are never perfect. Uh, we often mangle that process as well. So the struggle of the Christian faith involves shooting for goals that are largely unattainable in perfection, you know, and falling short and being humbled and needing to rely on God's grace as we kind of live a Christian life that's a mangled approximation of the kingdom ideals. Uh, you can take that down now, I suppose we've got the, the point. Um, now the temptation is for us to lower the standard and think, well, the mangled thing is okay, that's good enough. Or, you know, so you don't always have to forgive somebody or you don't have to care about all the sin in the church. But Jesus doesn't let us do that. He insists on the heavenly ideals because it is the kingdom of heaven. And this is particularly obvious when it comes to the topic of marriage and divorce, in fact. And perhaps this is why marriage and divorce are mentioned in the Gospels. Wherever our attitude to kingdom standards is being discussed, it seems like the topic of divorce is inserted there and marriage. Because marriage is the classic example of the struggle between the ideal and the actual. 
Um, now, the temptation in marriage is to settle for a lesser ideal, and the world has certainly lowered the bar when it comes to marriage. Some couples don't bother getting married at all. Other couples see marriage as temporary, you know, just for as long as we're both happy with it, and then we'll move on. Um, some marry but agree to an open marriage, so they both sort of, yeah, you can sleep around. Um, some maintain the appearance of a marriage, but they're really just cohabiting and live very different lives. You know, I heard um, Gwyneth Paltrow, who's Paltrow, Paltrow, who, um, you know, she's the actress and the, she's now sort of an influencer who tells everyone how to live their lives and what to eat and everything else. Uh, she has an intimacy teacher, who I assume she pays. It's a pretty good gig, isn't it? Um, uh, she has an intimacy teacher who told her, uh, I, I, I tell you what, in your next marriage, you should live in a separate house to your husband so you can maintain your individuality, or I think her word was polarity, and uh, just kind of sleep over with each other from time to time, which they do a few times a week. That hardly sounds like marriage, does it? If you're living in separate houses and just visiting each other from time to time. But you see, the world lowers the bar on marriage. And in some cases, it makes a complete joke of marriage, like that awful TV show, Married at First Sight, where let's marry these two people together and then watch it fall apart in the most painful public way. It mangles God's ideal of marriage. And Christians watch all of this, and we try to be faithful to God's ideal if we're married, but we are sinners too, and life can be cruel, and sometimes things go wrong, and none of us can look at God's ideal and honestly say, nailed it, you know, go home to my place and you'll see me and my wife, we're just nailing that, that, that biblical ideal of marriage. Uh, nobody would say that. So in Matthew 19, Jesus tackles our attitude to marriage in response to a question about divorce. Uh, marriage is an ideal to be treasured by those who are married and everybody else, even though marriage is not for everyone and there are bigger things in life. So, um, firstly, we see uh, the ideal to be treasured. So, verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 19, Jesus moves away from Galilee for the last time, uh, and sure enough, he moves towards Jerusalem, doesn't quite get there, he's over the other side of the Jordan, but some Pharisees came to him in verse 3 to test him, and they test him by asking this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's not a friendly question, it's a test, it's a trap, uh, because divorce was a hot-button issue at the time, it was very controversial, and the question was basically, how wide is the exit door in a marriage? Now, in Judaism, uh, divorce was not officially open to a wife at all. If you were a wife, you didn't get to divorce your husband, only the husband could divorce the wife. Very unfair, but that's the way it is, was. Um, and there were some groups within Juda Judaism that said the exit door is quite narrow, only adultery, but there were other groups in Judaism that said the exit door is wide open in a marriage, uh, very broad, all the way down to if she burns your dinner, that's grounds for divorce. You can divorce her. Somebody actually taught that. So it seems that it was quite an easy divorce culture, and even those who weren't looking to divorce at the time might still have liked the idea of having the option. There's an exit door behind me, I can go for that if I need to. So, here's the question, would Jesus be an easy divorce person or a hard divorce person? And whichever side he took, he would put some people offside. But the thing is, that if you are asking the question of how easy divorce should be, you have already surrendered the ideal for marriage. And Jesus was not willing to surrender the ideal. And so, we find Jesus upholding the ideal rather than surrendering it and 
not initially talking about divorce at all, he talks about marriage. So verses 4 to 6, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. So that's the ideal for marriage, comes from the Creator in Genesis 1 and 2. It's part of God's design for the blessing of humanity and the world. It's not a human arrangement, it's not something humans thought up, hey, let's pair up for life and do this thing called marriage. It's God's idea which He designed into the way He made the world. And notice some things about the ideal there as Jesus describes it. Firstly, it's complementary, that is, it's male and female. It's official, so there's a public leaving of one family in order to form a new family. It's primary, so it takes precedence over all other earthly relationships when you get married. It's profound, so two becoming one flesh. Uh, it's intimate, so it implies a sexual union. Marriage is the only place where sex belongs. It's exclusive, there's only room for two. And it's permanent. The gluing together that God does when two people get married must not be separated by anyone, says Jesus. So Jesus is saying married people should aim for that ideal. And if you're thinking maybe one day you'll get married, that should be what you realise you're signing up to. And worrying about the exit door to a marriage is hardly upholding God's purposes for marriage, which are such a profound unity. But the Pharisees seem to take the one Old Testament law about divorce and use it to undermine the ideal of marriage. So in verse 7, they say, Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? But the one law about divorce in the Old Testament doesn't command divorce and it doesn't encourage divorce ever. It just says, if divorce happens, then this is how it has to happen. So that one law on divorce is Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 to 4 and it basically says is if a man finds some indecency in his wife, that's the phrase it uses, some indecency, and gives her a certificate of divorce and sends her away, then he can never take her back again. That's what that law says. And that law is there to protect vulnerable wives from being strung along by careless husbands. It's sort of there to protect wives from being played with by their husbands. If you're going to divorce her, you have to let go of her properly and set her free completely. Give her a certificate and you can't take her back again. She's got to be free to marry somebody else. You can't play with her and keep her on a string. That's what the law is saying. So the law, you see, wasn't there to encourage divorce. It was only there to limit the damage if divorce had to happen. And yet the Jews in Jesus' time were taking that law to mean that divorce is sometimes okay. Well, Jesus doubles down on the ideal and defends it here in verses 8 and 9. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So he's saying that the Deuteronomy 24 law about how divorce was to happen was only there to limit the damage from hard-hearted husbands when divorce occurred. But he says, let's get back to the ideal. Let's focus again on the ideal of marriage. 
the point perhaps, one point here is perhaps our ethics around marriage and divorce shouldn't be governed by lawyers um, who argue over legislation about when you're allowed to do this and when you're allowed to do that and in what circumstances can that happen and then what happens there. It's not about fine print and loopholes. Our, our ethics about marriage and divorce should be governed by the ideal, as Jesus says here, which is what God holds us to, and that is a profound, exclusive, lifelong union. If you walk away from that and take up with somebody else, whether or not you attach a piece of paper to it, it's adultery, Jesus says, because God holds you to your original marriage. So that's the effect that Jesus uh, is trying to achieve here. Stop looking for the exit door. Look at the ideal. There is no exit door in the ideal. But of course, you'll have noticed the phrase in verse 9, except for sexual immorality. Interestingly, if you read um, Jesus, the parallel teaching of Jesus in the book of Mark or the book of Luke on marriage and divorce, the phrase about sexual immorality is not there. There's no exception at all in Mark and Luke. It's very stark and uncompromising. The ideal is all there is in those books. But here in Matthew, there's this exception. Jesus' intention in putting this exception here is not, it's not like inserting a loophole into legislation or let me give you a little escape clause. He's acknowledging that we do live in the real world where the actual doesn't reach the ideal and sometimes, it's true, marriages just can't go on, like when sexual immorality has irreparably damaged a relationship. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul mentions another sad situation when a, an unbeliever can't handle being married to a Christian anymore, and he says the Christian's not bound to that marriage. So there might be situations in which a Christian can exit a marriage with a clear conscience as a necessity, but the overall effect of Jesus' words here in Matthew 19 should be that we mustn't let go of the ideal. That's what Jesus is arguing for. Even if the actual is a long way short of the ideal, don't let go of that ideal. And if you're looking for an exit door, or even if you're just liking the idea of an exit door being there, then you're not honouring God's ideal for marriage. Um, Maybe this will confuse you a bit more or maybe it'll clarify things very slightly, but um, I bought a second-hand car earlier in the year and when I bought this second-hand car, um, I thought, okay, I'll make sure, I, I can't afford too much, but I'll make sure that I get one that has airbags because I've got an L-plater and a P-plater who are going to be driving this car. Sometimes I'm going to be in the car when they're driving, so let's get some airbags. <laughs> so it's got airbags, which is great. Now, when I get into that car, when I get into the car with them, or when I see them drive off, do I say to them, drive as carelessly as you want. Crash it if you like, it's fine, it's got airbags. No, it doesn't work that way. I say, drive carefully. Whether it's got airbags or not, I say, drive carefully. Um, I don't want them to ever crash. You don't drive a car recklessly just because it has airbags. And you shouldn't approach marriage recklessly just because the Bible acknowledges that sometimes we fall short. None of us are perfect drivers in our cars, but none of us aims to be bad drivers. Jesus is saying here, yes, the Bible acknowledges that things go wrong and sometimes divorce happens, but drive your marriage carefully and learn to drive it well and stay in your lane and don't take risks and maintain it well. Whatever you understand about divorce, it should not undermine God's ideal for marriage, which is two becoming one flesh for life. 
The Bible acknowledges that divorce happens. It acts to limit the damage uh, in that Old Testament law. But that shouldn't water down the absolute commitment of marriage, which is God's ideal. So the, the overall point here is that there is an, an ideal to be treasured by God's people in marriage. Even if the actual is quite shabby by comparison, we are to keep aiming up towards the ideal. So marriage is a much bigger deal than perhaps we are often led to believe when you watch TV or when you, when you go out in the world and see all the attitudes to it. But on the other hand, we still need to keep it in perspective. So uniquely in verses 11 and 12, uh, Matthew includes some verses about singleness, which is a different gift. The seriousness with which Jesus talks about marriage provokes a reaction from his disciples. Um, verse 10, they said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Did they say that out of shock and horror? Um, or did they say it as a sort of a nervous joke? It's sort of hard to get the, the gist of or the mood in which they said this. But it seems they've realised that they have been taking marriage too lightly. Jesus is saying, there is the ideal. Um, and they've thought, good grief, he's, this is serious. Some of them were already married, uh, Jesus' disciples. Um, but they'd, of course, been quite aware that Jesus himself was not married. And perhaps they're coming to understand why when he's explained his views on marriage coming from the Bible. Taking marriage seriously might actually cause you to decide that marriage is not for you. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. And he's talking there about um, the suggestion that it might be better not to marry. He's saying, yes, that's true for some people. And it's given for some people to accept that word in their situation, it's better for them not to marry. It's true. Now, in the Old Testament era, being single was always a tragedy. Everybody was heading for marriage. It was assumed your parents would actively try to make sure you married. If you didn't find somebody, they'd find someone for you. Uh, it was assumed that you'd marry even if you didn't want to or even if you weren't particularly suited, just get married and that's the way everything works. In the New Testament, there are more reasons to stay single. Jesus goes on in this passage to refer to single people as eunuchs, uh, which doesn't make it sound all that fun at all um, and is quite awkward. But I think the reason he uses the word is he's referring to celibacy, that is, not being sexually active. Uh, that's, uh, uh, those are the terms in which he refers to singleness here. And that's because sex is for marriage. So if you're not married, you are called to be celibate. This, of course, um, flies in the face of what the world says to us about sex. The world says that no person can live without sex. Whether you're single or you're married, you've got to be having sex because everybody needs sex once you reach puberty. Jesus says, if you're single, you should be celibate. That is not sexually active. And a Christian needs to trust God to enable us to be obedient and holy and live without sex if we're not married. We need to trust God with that. Firstly, Jesus mentions people who are single by necessity, uh, eunuchs who were born that way. Uh, that is, people who don't have normal sexual function and uh, couldn't get by in a heterosexual marriage. Um, they're single by necessity. 
He then refers to eunuchs who were made that way by other people, that is castration, which was a thing in the ancient world. Uh, and then he mentions people who are single by choice, literally those who have made themselves eunuchs, which doesn't literally mean self-castration, he's speaking figuratively. He's talking about those who choose to choose a single celibate life for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I'm choosing not to marry, which means I'm not going to be sexually active for the sake of the kingdom. And he's serious. This is not just a theory. It's a valid choice. And of course, Jesus is describing his own situation there. You know, you, you'll, you'll, you might have come across silly stories in which Jesus married Mary Magdalene and da-da-da-da-da and all that sort of stuff. No basis whatsoever to that. Marriage was not an option for Jesus, knowing what his mission was, which was to die on a cross. It would have been totally selfish for Jesus to marry some poor girl, knowing that he had to die on the cross. Who would he have married anyway? Would have been hard to match him up with somebody, I imagine. But he chose a celibate life, because he knew the work that God had for him to do. John the Baptist also. Uh, the Apostle Paul also, after, became, after he became a Christian at least, was not married. And so the three greatest figures in the New Testament chose a single celibate life for the sake of the work that God had given them to do. And there are many people since then who have made the same choice. God has given me work to do, I will not marry. Now Jesus is not saying that celibacy puts you on a higher spiritual plane to everybody else. Oh, I am so spiritual, I'm going without marriage. And uh, that's a mistake that's made in the Roman Catholic tradition. If you if you're celibate, then, then you can be a priest and you're on a higher plane and all that stuff. But Jesus is saying that even though marriage is an ideal that should be honoured and not diminished and treasured, singleness is also a gift and it may be a necessary and valid option. At least this means for us in this church, we shouldn't speak as if marriage is the goal of life because it's not the goal of life. We shouldn't assume that everybody is married or everybody wants to marry. And we should open our fellowship to people in all kinds of different situations, whether they be married, whether they be single, whether they be single again, that is widowed or divorced, uh, whether they're single by choice, whether they're single by necessity, whether they're single but just seeing what happens. Whatever the situation, we open up our fellowship to them because the path that you happen to be on is not the path that everybody should be on. Jesus is saying there's lots of different options here. Everybody has their gift from God and we should acknowledge and accept that. So don't just seek fellowship with people who are on the same track that you're on. There's lots of different tracks. Marriage is an ideal to treasure. Singleness is a gift to acknowledge. But I want to finish by saying that in the end, there is an ultimate ideal for which every Christian is aiming, no matter what their situation is, and that is the completed kingdom of heaven. And that's really what we're living for. In a way, both singleness and marriage point us towards something greater. The ideal of marriage points us towards the perfected relationship between Christ and his people in the kingdom. Uh, singleness also points us to the resurrection, where there'll be no more earthly marriage, but just perfect fellowship. And that means that if you're married, be married well for the sake of the kingdom. And if you're single, be single well for the sake of the kingdom. To put it another way, everybody's looking for happily ever after in life. Everyone has their ideal of ha happily ever after. Some might think getting married will be happily ever after. Some people who are married think getting divorced will lead to happily ever after. 
But Christians know that God's great kingdom, happily ever after, is coming and that's what we're really focusing on. And we're called to live for the kingdom in whatever situation we're in and not surrender the ideals that God has given for us, the ideals for marriage, the ideals for singleness, the ideals for the kingdom of heaven. There is, of course, a big gap between the ideal and the actual in our Christian lives, especially in our love lives and in our sexual natures. There's a big gap between perfection and where we are. Uh, and sometimes we mangle things in a really bad way and things go very pear-shaped. But God's grace covers the gap between the ideal and the actual if you're in Christ. And we still mustn't surrender the ideals that God has given us. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, he knows that we're not going to attain that, but he's saying, don't let go of the ideal. So I've got a prayer at the bottom of the outline, which I'll pray, and you might like to make it your own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the situation I am in is a gift from you. I'm sorry that I sometimes see it as a burden and think selfishly after worldly desires. Thank you that your grace covers the gap between the actual and the ideal in my life. Help me to honour both your ideal for marriage and your gift of singleness. Help me to give my best for your kingdom in my circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen.